0: turn to Colossians. Let's turn to Colossians chapter one. Uh, We did our introduction to Colossians last week and what we're going to look at today is we're going to kind of go through, uh, I'll put our uh, outline back up, but we're just going to kind of go through and hit some of the major passages that's in the the book of Colossians or the letter that Paul writes to the church at Colossae. Again, Paul is uh, in prison as he's writing this letter, uh, probably written right around the same time as uh, Ephesians is written, as we saw, there are many parallels between Ephesians and Colossians. And even though, you know, these letters, Galatians, uh, you know, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, even though these group of four letters, these are probably four of my favorite letters. Uh, they're small letters that are just kind of grouped together right here. And, but they are packed full of rich Information they are packed full of rich revelation about God and about His plan and about the church and who we are in response to who god is and there 's just some really, really great stuff, and Colossians is another one of those uh, books that is just short in length but is very large as far as its impact and its implications and that it has so we just looked last week at some of the major emphasis and themes, and we 're going to highlight uh, a couple of those. Uh, today as we probably spend more time in a couple of passages than we do others. But I want to begin and we're going to look in chapter 1 of Colossians. Uh, The first 14 verses, as you see here, is the greeting, the thanksgiving, and the prayer. Uh, You know, some of this is pretty standard for Paul's writings. He normally uh, introduces his letter with uh, an introduction, who he is, uh, with a short greeting, uh, with a word of encouragement to them, grace and peace to you, a word of salutation, introduction, uh, and then a thanksgiving and a prayer. And, and the church at Colossae is one that he gives thanksgiving for. As we notice uh, in verse number 3 of Colossians, verse number 3 of Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And the love you have for all of God's people. And the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. So again, Paul is sitting in prison. And we see that one of Paul's associates brings news to Paul about what's going on in the church. A lot of it was good. Some of it concerns Paul and he addresses it all. The good thing then, the good report that Paul hears about the church in Colossians is about their faith. Again, a primarily Gentile church, probably many uh, young people that are in the faith or young in the faith that are in the church. Uh, And he says, I have heard about your faith and I've heard about your love that you have for all of God's people. So their faith and their love are two things that Paul highlights here that he is giving God thanks and praise for, which is evidence that the gospel is working among them, that the gospel has taken root in their hearts, that they haven't just heard about it. You know, you can hear about the gospel in your head uh, and it can be a knowledge that you have. But when the gospel is rooted in your heart, it begins to bring about change in your life. So Paul makes the statement here. He says that um, in uh, verse number six, uh, the gospel that has come to you In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So they had heard the message of the gospel. They received it and it was bearing fruit. And it was bringing forth expression through their faith and their love that they have for other people. And then he continues to pray for them as we look down in verse number 9. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And notice what Paul prays for this church. He says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives. And this prayer is very important for what Paul is going to address later on. As we looked last week in our introduction, we saw that there was uh, some teaching going around that we called the Colossian heresy. And Paul, to address the Colossian heresy, is not just to warn them of what is wrong, but it is to show them what is right. You know, and that is so important in teaching people. Because you can tell people what is wrong all day, but then in showing them what is wrong, we need to show them what is right. And we need to show them what is true. So as Paul is going to address in a couple of chapters this heresy that is being taught in the church and that they're being influenced by, he's first trying to establish and to ground them in what is true. You know, one of the old saying is you can recognize what is false by knowing what is true. So that way when you know what is true, when something false comes before you, you'll be able to recognize it. So as he grounds them in the truth, he prays that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will through wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And through the wisdom and understanding that they would live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so they would have great endurance and patience so he prays for a lot there and it starts with the knowledge of god's will through the wisdom and understanding of the spirit living the life worthy that they would please god am i pleasing god he he puts here bearing fruit in every good work growing in the knowledge of god being strengthened with all power uh, that they would have great patience and endurance and giving joyful thanks to the father Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now he's bringing in the supremacy of Christ. So, you know, he starts out appealing to them that uh, they would grow in the knowledge and uh, the wisdom of God, that their lives would reflect their growth in a lot of different areas, bearing fruit, being strengthened, uh, patience, endurance, thankfulness. All these are qualities that come from a life that's being influenced by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you've been translated. You've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness. You've been taken apart from the kingdoms of this world and the way the world lives and the way the world thinks and and the way that the, the evil influences of the world. And you've been brought into the kingdom of Christ. So we've been taken from the life that we knew, the old life out of the old world, out of the old creation that's fallen and sinful into a new life, being made a new creation in Christ Jesus, living in a new kingdom with a new set of values, with a new set of principles, with a new governing influence, not being governed by our passions or or the powers of this world, but being governed by the spirit of, of the living God. And he says, it's in this kingdom and through this son that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And he's going to pick back up on that theme in a few verses. But as he introduces the kingdom, having redemption and forgiveness of sins, in verse 15, he starts what is this beautiful poem. Now, some people even think part of this poem was, you know, a early Christian hymn that Paul included into the letter. Uh, We don't know that for a fact. Uh, because Paul has been known to write some really, really amazing and marvelous words about Christ. And, but whether this was an early Christian hymn that Paul included, or these are Paul's original words uh, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they still reveal so much about the very essence and the nature of God. Because everything begins with who is God. Every religion on the face of the earth begins with the question, who is God? How does God express himself to people? How can people approach this God? How can people please this God? How can they find redemption in this God? And every religion addresses that question. So the first question that we have to ask ourselves is who is God? for our view of God will shape our view of everything else. It'll shape our view of the world around us. It'll shape our view of ourselves, how we relate to to God. What do we think that God is like? You know, we can certainly, we won't do it, but we can certainly, we could go around the room and say, what is the image that pops in your mind when I say the word God? And only you know what that image is, you know, whether, whether God is light, you know, just this infathomable light, whether whether God is peace or love or whether God is this this figure that's literally sitting up in the clouds on the throne right now or, you know, whatever that picture is of God. We all have that picture. That picture is probably a little different in all of our minds. But the one thing that we have to understand is that this picture of God has to be formed and shaped. Our view of God has to be view of shaped by what is revealed to us, in the scriptures about God. And Paul begins this here with really of who God is and how can we know that? What does God look like? What does God act like? And he lays out a beautiful, beautiful writing here in verses 15 through 20 about God. So in 15 through 23 here, you see this is the second portion on your papers. I'm going to read through some of this on our paper Uh, under Christ's supremacy and reconciliation. It says, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, is one of the most remarkable early Christian writings, articulating the movement between creation and new creation, the world and and his people, redemption, both accomplished in, through, and for the Messiah. This marvelous passage, which, which has profoundly a hymnic quality to it, actually continues the sentence that begins in verse number 12 and continues through 16. Notice how what began with the Father's redemption through His Son now proceeds to exalt the Son who bears His image. In turn, Paul proclaims first the Son's supremacy and absolute lordship in relationship to the whole created order, including the powers, human or otherwise, as the creator of all things and in relationship to the church, as its Redeemer. Concluding with a concern that the Colossians stay with Christ, the preexistent Lord of the world, has become the human Lord of the world, and in doing so, in so doing, has reflected fully the God whose image he has now come to bear. So we're gonna we're gonna look at this passage in in detail, and we're gonna spend a good amount of time here breaking down some of the phrases that's in this passage of Scripture. But beginning in verse number fifteen, the first phrase that we see well, let me read 15 and 16, because here's how I'm going to break this down. Verses 15 and 16, we're going to look at together. Verses 17 and 18, and then 19 and 20. So in 15 through 20, this is the ma- these are the breakdowns. Two verses, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. So 15 and 16 says this. I'm going to read it first. 15 and 16 of Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So Paul's teaching us about God. And as Paul is teaching us about God, he teaches us about Jesus. So the first phrase that we want to look at is verse number 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The Son is the image of the invisible God. This is to say that Christ is the very nature of, and being of God, and that through Christ, the very nature and being of God has been perfectly revealed. So everyone wants to know, what is God like? Who is God? The simple answer to that is if you want to know God, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, God is a spirit, we're told, and Jesus tells us in, in John chapter 4. He says, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So, so God feels all in all. God is spirit, and he's the invisible God. So how can you know something that is invisible in spirit? Because the invisible and the spirit put on visibility and flesh and wrapped it up in flesh and sent it to us and said, you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. So Christ is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said in John, or John says in John chapter one, verse 18, the gospel of John, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and in the closest relationship with the father has made him known. He says, no one has seen God, But the one and only Son has made him known. Christ is the image of the invisible God. John chapter 14, verse 18. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And what was Jesus' response? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been with you such a long time, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You've been looking at him the whole time. And Jesus and the Father are in perfect union together. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, let me read that to you. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Understand that the Son is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty, uh, right hand of the Majesty in heaven. But Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 kind of parallels the same themes that we see here in Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. Uh, but Hebrews chapter 1 begins, and Hebrews is written by a Jewish person, really for Jewish people. It's a very Jewish book. So Hebrews 1 begins: in past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets that was our word of authority in the old testament but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he's appointed heir of all things now christ is the authority he's the one by which god speaks to us today the son is the radiance of god's glory the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word colossians talks about that sustaining all things Uh, through, all, through him the universe was made. Colossians talks about that. He provided purification for sins. Colossians talks about that. So Hebrews 1 is kind of a you know, parallel verse to um, or parallel passage to Colossians chapter 1. But if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. There is no discrepancy or division between the two. The Son came to earth for several reasons. I mean, He came to you know, bring redemption to humanity. He came to be Israel's Savior. But yet, Jesus came to reveal the Father to humanity. And that is so important to remember. Jesus came to reveal the Father to humanity. In the Old Testament, you said, Wasn't well, God revealed through the Old Testament? And I would say, Yes and No. Yes, God revealed himself to different people at different times and different ways in the Old Testament. He revealed himself to Adam in the garden. He revealed himself to Abraham. He revealed himself to Moses through a burning bush. He revealed himself to David as the man in the fire. so, So God is revealing himself, parts of himself, facets of himself, glimpses of himself sides of himself he's showing people parts of him in the old testament we see that all throughout so that i would say in that aspect yes you know god revealed himself in the old testament however i would say no because we did not get the full picture of god until jesus stepped on the scene and jesus is saying here's what i am like and here's what God is like. Here's what God is like. So when we see Jesus working, we see God working. When we see Jesus forgiving, it's God forgiving. When we see Jesus being merciful, it's God. When we see Jesus healing, it's, it's God. When we see Jesus casting out devils, it's God. When we see Jesus going to the cross, it's God So Jesus comes to reveal the Father. While we have pictures in the Old Testament and glimpses and revelations, we have the full representation, the exact image of God when Jesus steps on the scene. And that's so important that we look at God through Jesus. Um, The writer of the book that we have, Gordon Fee, he said this in an interview, and I love this quote. He says, Every false theology in history has been a failure to take this seriously. That the only true understanding of God is that which comes through revelation of the Son, who is the full, perfect, absolute representation of God and what, who He is and what He is like. Every false theology has steered away from what we learn about God through the revelation in the Son because that is where the full revelation of God Takes place one day. I want that saying on a picture, you know, hung up in in my room because to me that is a marvelous picture. Everywhere we get off course with God, it's because we fail to see Him through the lens of the exact image of God, Jesus. So the ultimate expression of the revelation of God through Jesus, the ultimate expression of the revelation of God through Jesus, comes on the cross. Comes on the cross with God's own creation, trying to crucify the Lord of glory. But instead of crucifying him and getting rid of him, we got him forever. That's the image of God. So Christ is the image of the invisible God. The next statement that we see in verse number 15 is that he is the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Now, one thing this is not saying in which some, you know, maybe Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormon-type beliefs, uh, would try to make this say is that Jesus was the first created being. He was the first created being. That is not what this passage of Scripture is saying. At all. That's not what this phrase is saying because the very next phrase cancels it out. So this phrase is not saying that Jesus was the first of all beings to be created. It is saying that it is Him by whom the whole creation came into being. For he's the firstborn over all creation. And verse 16 says, For in him all things were created. Things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So the term firstborn here is more of a status, a title, than an actual birth order or created Order um, Israel is called God's firstborn son. He was they were the first above all the other nations. Uh, the coming king that's prophesied from the Davidic line in Psalm eighty nine twenty seven says, "I will appoint him to be my firstborn and most exalted of the kings of the earth." Uh, the firstborn uh, of the household ordinarily was appointed the heir, uh, even though this. According to Scripture, it didn't even have to be a biological son. It could have been an adopted son. But we see this idea of the firstborn in rank, the firstborn in order, the firstborn in supremacy. So he's not saying Jesus was the first to be created. He's saying Jesus was the first overall of creation. And without him, there is no creation. For verse 17, so 15 and 16, is Christ's role in creation. Verse 17 and 18, verse 17 says, He is before all things. He is before all things. He is the one who was before all creation, the pre-existent Christ. And that was kind of a... um, That that phrase, the pre-existent, it wasn't anything that was really grasped among Israel in the first century. Uh, When Jesus was talking... I don't know if I put that down here or not. I did not. You know, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees at one point, he was talking about, you know, Abraham. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. How do you know Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. I was pre-existent before, even before Abraham. So he is before all things. He is the one who was before all creation, the preexistent cosmic Christ. John chapter 1 is a parallel passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that was made. So in verse 17, we see He is before all things. And then it says this phrase, and in Him all things hold together. Have you ever thought, I've thought, what keeps this ball floating in space i think i said it in a sermon you know months back we are literally on a ball floating in the middle of nowhere you know what what keeps this ball right here what keeps it moving or turning you know they they always say you know a few inches closer to the sun we'd burn up a few inches further away we'd freeze to death you know what you know and obviously there's you know scientific explanation for all of that but there's also the spiritual explanation behind the scientific explanation. And Paul says, not only did he create all things, but he's the one that holds all things together. What holds the atoms in our, our bodies together? What, who's behind all the science? I believe a creator is behind all of the science and all the scientific explanations. And Paul certainly taught that as God is the creator of all things, he's also the sustainer of all things. He's the one that holds all things together. So Christ is the sustainer of the universe and the unifying principle of its life. Um, in the passage we read in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, 1.3 says, sustaining all things by the power of his word. He spoke, let there be, let there be. And he holds, sustains all things together by his word. So we see the cosmic aspect of, of Christ. He was before all things. He created all things. He holds all things together. Now we go from the cosmic aspect to the humanity. What about redemption in humanity? If Christ is the creator of the world, he's also the creator of of mankind. If he's the sustainer of the world, he's also the sustainer of mankind. And what about mankind? What about his human creation? Well, we find here that in verse 18, it says that he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. So the first phrase in verse 18 is he is the head of the body, the church. This theme is explored uh, in other places. And we've talked about it before. In 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the body of Christ. We are all many members of one body. And 1 Corinthians 12 presents Christ as a many-membered body. As we said, the word Christ was really a title. The word Christ comes from the word Christos, which means anointing. So Christ was anointed by God. Jesus was anointed by God. He received the Christos of God, was anointed. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, went about doing the works of God on the earth. Well, Jesus in Acts chapter. You know, one ascends, one and two ascends up into heaven. Jesus uh, disappears from the sight of the believers. But he tells the believers this, I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. Wait for the Holy Spirit. For the same Spirit that anointed me, the same Christos that anointed me, is the same Spirit that will anoint you, is the same Christos that will anoint you. So I often like to say, and it, it took me a while to really come to a true revelation of it, but Jesus, the man in physical body form, left the planet. But Christ, the anointing and the spirit that resided on him, that empowered him, is still here. And there is still a body of Christ still on the earth. And it's the church. It's you and I together as his body. The church is the embodiment of the anointing that was in Jesus Christ. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. So Christ is still here. But he's here 1 Corinthians 12 says that Christ Christ is a many-membered body. He is the head, but his body is a many-membered body called the church, who is filled with the same spirit that Christ had. So Christ is still on the earth today. Christ is still moving on the earth. Christ is still working. He's still preaching and teaching. But his body isn't one body and one man named Jesus. His body is now a many-membered body called the church, which you and I, are a part of so when we move he moves when we teach he teaches and we love he loves we are his hands and we are his feet christ ruling and reigning from the heavens is our head to whom we submit to who we who we are under authority of who we receive our marching orders for on this earth but christ is the head of the body the church first corinthians 12 romans chapter 12 it says as in one body we have many members we though many are one body in christ ephesians chapter 1 22 and 23 god placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every and I just have to go back to that statement every time I read it. The church is his body. The church is the fullness of him that fills everything. That's why Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, it is, we're not going to get off of this verse. Y'all know that, right? <laughs> Once I hit this flow, it's, it's over. But, but, but Jesus looked at his disciples and he says, it is better for you that I go away. Now, I would ask the question, what would be better than having Jesus here with us? They got to sit down with him and eat with him and talk with him and laugh with him and see his miracles with their own eyes and hear his teaching with their own ears. It's like, what would we give to have Jesus in the midst of us doing those things and him being here with us? I mean, you know, we'll talk about it more probably in a couple of weeks when we get the first Thessalonians. But, you know, we're waiting for Jesus to come back because when Jesus comes back, when that body comes, comes back to earth, he's going to fix everything and everything's going to be right again. And He's going to bring in peace and righteousness and and joy. So we can't... Every, all the church is praying for, for that Jesus to come back when that same Jesus told his disciples, it's better for you that I go away. So yes, while I believe you know in waiting for Jesus, I think we don't need to miss the Jesus we have with us now. I don't want to miss the Jesus I have with me now waiting for someday, one day over yonder when, when he comes back. And all the while, I neglected the presence of Christ that is here with me now. So he looks at the disciples, and he says, it's better for you that I go away before, because if I don't go away, the spirit of truth will not come to you. And he says, the works that I do, he said, greater works will you do because I go to my father. And he wasn't saying greater works in terms of, you know, I walked on water, you know, you're going to do better than that, or I healed a thousand people. You're, you know, it's not greater in quality, but it's greater in quantity because as long as Jesus was here in a physical body, he was limited. He was in one place at one time, you know, and he healed people in this city, but there was people in other cities and he had to travel and, but he said, now when the spirit of truth comes on you, and when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, you'll do even greater works, not in terms of quality, but quantity. Because now that same spirit that was on one person, when I'll be in 12, and we'll be on 120, and then we'll be on 3,000, and then 5,000, and then 100,000, and a million as the church, his body feels the earth, moving by the same spirit that dwelled in Christ. So that is the body of Christ. We as a church, you know, that's the reality. And I still try to grasp that reality because still so many people, we think, oh, we just, the Christian life is coming in a church and sitting, singing a couple of songs, listening to a sermon and going home. But it's so much more than that. So reclaiming and understanding what, who we are as the church it comes from knowing who he is, first of all, And who is he? Well, Paul tells us here. He's the image of the invisible God. So if Christ on the earth was reflected God, not in the same way, obviously, but the church today, his body should reflect the nature of God. We should reflect his love. We should reflect his forgiveness and and his grace. We, we, We should be the hands and feet of Jesus. When people look at us, they should see what God is like. And oh, but as I look at the state of the church as a whole, and see the divisions that's in the church and everything. I'm like, we are so far from that. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, my prayer is that you would grow up into him in all things, that you would grow up and reflect the image of Jesus Christ. So who is it? He's the invisible, image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the head of his church. Uh, verse 18 It says he's the head of of the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Uh, So there's that term firstborn again, but this time it's the firstborn from the dead. This speaks of the resurrection. This speaks of the resurrection. And in resurrection, uh, he receives the title, the beginning and the firstborn. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that marks the triumph over all of his enemies. In Ephesians chapter 1, I read it just a few minutes ago. God placed all things under his feet. God placed all things under his feet. Jesus, read the last couple of verses of the Gospel of Matthew. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. How did that happen? By the resurrection. Because when Jesus died and rose again, he triumphed over all his enemies. There is not one enemy that jesus still has to triumph over because the cross was the triumph and we'll read that in a couple of verses later in chapter two but his resurrection marked the triumph over all the forces that held people in bondage the first easter morning saw a new hope for humanity romans chapter one verse four says and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of god in power by his resurrection from the dead through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord so he holds all things together he's the head of the body and his resurrection reveals his power in verses 19 and 20 I was really intending on finishing I was intended on finishing Colossians today that's that's not going to happen but that's okay, because I'm still working on First Thessalonians, so I'll, I'll, I may take a few more weeks to, to do that. Uh, but verse 19 and 20, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So the first part, in verses 15 and 16, we saw the role of Christ in creation. Uh, 17 and 18 is kind of a uh, two transitional verses which introduce the idea of Christ as the head of the body and establishing the resurrection. Verses 19 and 20 is the role of Christ in reconciliation. In reconciliation. The first statement says God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him. The second statement was through him to reconcile all things to himself. Now reconciliation is when you had two parties who are divided, who there's a problem between them, there's something separating them, they could be enemies, but reconciliation takes place and the two things that were separate are now come together and there's peace between the two and there's friendship between the two and there's unity between the two. So we see that creation and humanity, the two things that God created, enmity came between them the fall of creation and the fall of man through death that came into all of the world but it says that christ as the creator of all things it would seem that through him all things became estranged from their creator if all things were created through him then all things are to be reconciled to god through him creation and humanity uh, romans chapter 8 talks about the creation Romans chapter 8, 20 and 21. And I'll have a copy of this for you next week. Romans 8, 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to frustration or futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So there's a reconciliation that we find in humanity, but also Romans talks about, and it says, it goes on to say, the creation is groaning for the manifestation of the sons of God. So Romans 8 talks about the creation was hurled into futility and frustration, but yet would be liberated through him who would reconcile it and to bring freedom. So Christ is seen as the reconciler of all that went wrong in the fall of, And he did this, and he does this by making peace through his blood on the cross. Now what Paul's doing here is he's setting up for the next few verses. So we find out that from the kingdom of darkness to, to the kingdom of light, he introduces the idea of how God is over everything. Then we talk about how he's the firstborn from the dead, the head of the church. Now he talks about how that is because he reconciled through his blood. So reconciliation is one of those things that's a marvelous teaching of the gospel. Because here's what we wonder a lot of times. Does God love me or does he not? God loves me. He loves me not. Well, I've done pretty good today. I read my Bible and I prayed God loves me. Well, I got up today and I didn't read my Bible, didn't pray God may not love me today. God wants to bless me today because I've done right. Well, God's going to curse me tomorrow if I do wrong. You know, it's kind of like we almost approach God as that you know, sometimes if you've ever had a boss that, or a co-worker or a husband or wife, I'm going to look way up here now, As a husband and wife who you don't really know how to approach them. You don't know what kind of mood they're in when you walk in to the office. You don't know if they're going to be in a good mood today or in a bad mood today. Uh, you wait for people to have their coffee. You know, we're going donut, and then you talk to them because you just don't know what kind of mood they're in. And sometimes we're like that with God. We don't know what kind of mood he's in with us. We don't know if God's going to zap us today, if he's going to cause sickness to come upon us or cause us to get an accident, or if he's going to bless us today. And, you know, and that goes back to number one, we have to understand who he is by understanding Jesus. And you understand Jesus and you understand Jesus by the work on the cross of what he did for us. And you understand his love by the work on the cross. Does God love me? Did Jesus die for you? Yes, well, that answers that question. Let's go on to the next one. You know, what does God think of me today? Does the blood of Jesus cover you? Well, you don't have to wonder what he thinks about you today because it's been revealed through the cross. It's been revealed through the love of God. So Christ's death brought reconciliation. So that's a heart of the gospel. And it's amazing, you know, I I spent a lot of time growing up in church. I'm not going to say I listened to everything that was said growing up, but I don't remember hearing about The reconciliation, how I was reconciled to God in Christ. I was told I shouldn't do bad things, I shouldn't sin, and God was going to get me if I did. I don't think I was ever told that I have been reconciled, that I have peace with God. I have peace. You have peace with God. Absolute peace with God. Isn't it great to have relationships where there's peace, mutual love and peace and harmony? When you have relationships with division, that's not, that's not a good feeling. So how do I relate to God today? We have peace with God. Do we have peace with God on the basis of what I've done today? Do I have peace with God on the basis of how I've you know, acted or if I've failed or succeeded or how good I've kept religious rules? The scripture says in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, not because of what I've did, but because of what he did. Listen, when we were enemies of God, he reconciled. You were reconciled to God before you were even saved. He already reconciled you to him. He already took the thing that separated you and him out of the way so that you can come freely to him. You have been, you, everybody's reconciled unto God. Now, not everybody's saved or has received that, or has reconciled God to themselves, but God reconciled all of humanity by the cross. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21, this is another one. It says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So it's our job as ambassadors for Christ to go out and tell people, you've been reconciled to God. This is what Jesus has done for you. You didn't ask him. He didn't ask you if you wanted it. Here's what he did for you. He died for you. He took your sin for you. He loves you and he wants you to come to him and receive the free gift of salvation that's offered to you through what Jesus did for you on the cross. It says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are Christ ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God's already reconciled you to himself. The blood's already been shed for your sin. Now you... Be reconciled to God. You come to Him and receive His gift of forgiveness. Romans five ten. For if when we were enemies, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. I wish I'd have memorized that verse back in children's church. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. When we were enemies. When we were sinners, when we were lost, we were reconciled by the death of his son. Now that I've been reconciled, I shall be saved by his life, the life that I receive and the forgiveness. So this is how he sets up verses 21 through 23. And I'm going to read 21 through 23 and we'll pick up there next week. So he talks about making peace through reconciliation. So he says in verse 21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So then he encourages them, if you continue in the faith, firm, do not move from the hope that is held in the gospel. Why Why did he add that in there? Did he add that in there just to threaten them? God's reconciled you. Now, Continue in the faith, be established and firm and do not move. He's not threatening them. He's encouraging them for what he's getting ready to say in a few verses. Because there's some teaching that's going to try to lead them away from Christ. So he's telling them, you continue in the faith. This is how you started in the faith, through Christ's reconciliation. Continue in that. This is how you started with the gospel. Continue in that. Be firm in that. Be rooted in that. Do not move away from that hope. Because there's people coming in that's trying to move you away from Christ and tell you you can find salvation in other ways. Tell you that if you really want to be holy, you need to, You need. it's about your self-control. It's about this mystical type of spirituality that you have to have. And he's saying you must continue in this faith, rooted and established. And that's the faith that points us to the gospel, how God reconciled us, how when we were or are enemies of God, alienated from God. We were brought near to God and reconciled through, through death. We are holy in His sight, without blemish. We're free from accusation. So don't leave that and be swayed by these other doctrines and heresies that lead us away from the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ.